You're listening to the Islamic Sustainable Finance and Investment Podcast, the show discussing the latest and most exciting developments of Sharia-compliant sustainable finance. We are seeing Islamic financial institutions make considerable decarbonization targets and efforts over the past few years. With the upcoming COP28 to be held in a Muslim jurisdiction for the second year in a row, the spotlight is very much on the industry. My name is Marlena, the editor of Islamic Sustainable Finance and Investment, and I'm joined by Joe Clinton and Afsha Karim from Allen & Overy to discuss how Islamic financial institutions can contribute to decarbonization and some of the challenges they face. Joe is a project partner specializing in the financing aspects of energy, natural resources, and infrastructure projects, while Afsha is a senior associate from Allen & Overy's Dubai banking team with a special interest in Islamic finance. Hi guys, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here, thank you. Thanks for having us. What are some of the efforts Islamic financial institutions are making with regard to decarbonization? So um, over the last couple of years, we're starting to see much more in the Islamic finance space with respect to efforts towards decarbonization and ESG more generally. Whilst the Paris Agreement in 2015 really sparked the interest globally, it's been the last couple of years aided by the various climate change conferences, notably COP, that we are seeing an ever-increasing focus by financial institutions on how they can positively impact climate change from an Islamic finance perspective. There are very clear synergies between achieving net zero and fundamental principles that underpin Sharia law, such as promoting environmental stewardship, social justice and economic development. So this is clearly an area that fits within the product space that Islamic finance institutions would want to operate in. We have seen ESG and green principles incorporated into large high-profile multi-bank facilities. And now we're seeing this extend across to a wide range of asset classes as well, from real estate to corporate finance to project finance. To give you a couple of examples, the Islamic Development Bank announced that it will fully align its sovereign operations with the objectives of the Paris Agreement by the end of 2023. And Malaysia Securities launched a new Sukuk framework to facilitate fundraising by companies that would be monitored by sustainably related KPIs. And we know that Malaysia is very keen to place itself as the regional centre of Sharia-compliant, sustainable and responsible investment. We've also seen out of Bahrain, Intercorp's Green Sukuk, which is the first Green Sukuk issuance from Bahrain. And in the UAE, Majid al Fatame's 1.2 billion US dollar green and sustainably linked issuance. So it's really a mix of transition, green and sustainably linked financings. We think that from what we've seen so far, linking Sharia principles and decarbonization efforts would appeal to a larger investor base. So we expect this trend to keep continuing, particularly now that the more traditional oil-reliant nations like the UAE and Saudi are aiming to be the main drivers for change within the GCC region. So what are the types of sustainable financing that you are seeing from Islamic financial institutions? 
I suppose they fall into three buckets. There's transition financing, green financing, and sustainably linked financing. To start with transition financing, this is used to provide financing to high emitting sectors that aren't really eligible for green financing, but are still keen to meet the Paris Agreement targets. So in 2020, the Islamic finance sector saw the first transition sukuk by Etihad Airways, which raised 600 million for investment in sustainable aviation and carbon reduction targets. Um, that sukuk included a commitment from the airline to pay a penalty in the form of carbon offset if it failed to meet its targets to reduce its carbon intensity on passenger fleet. So that was a great example of transition financing. We haven't seen too much more in this area, possibly because the criteria for transition financing hasn't really developed as much as it has for green and sustainably linked financings. But moving on to green financing, the defining feature of a green financing is that the proceeds of the financing are used for green purposes. So the proceeds are specifically allocated to fund projects that have a positive environmental impact. Examples can include projects that will generate renewable energy, clean transportation, carbon neutrality, sustainable water and water waste management. In 2021, the Loan Markets Association published its Green Loan Principles, which really set the foundations of the criteria that financial institutions are looking for when they label a financing green. I'll just very quickly touch on some of these. So these financings would need a very clear and specific purpose that demonstrates that the funds will be applied towards a green purpose. The documentation would need to identify that there's been a process for evaluation and selection of this green project. So that's really going to like a due diligence exercise or the commissioning of a third party report or some sort of certification that demonstrates that the project is actually for a green purpose. Then there's the management of the financing proceeds. So we would expect, for instance, a account waterfall that demonstrates that the disbursements will pay project costs of the green project. And then finally, reporting obligations, which are ongoing reporting obligations, such as use of proceeds certifications or reporting on the associated environmental benefits of this green project. So we're really seeing the, these criteria as the main fundamentals to achieve green status. And it's encouraging to see institutions like Dubai Islamic Bank, who've issued their own sustainable finance frameworks, and they also implement these LMA principles. And it's really with institutions doing things like this, that's encouraging transparency and standardization in an area that's quite new. In terms of a couple of examples of these types of financings, the Islamic Development Bank issued a green sukuk. The proceeds of this sukuk are allocated to green projects, including renewable energy across its member countries. So that's a great example of how Islamic finance can be a conduit for funding developing countries in their de decarbonisation efforts. 
And then we've also seen real estate transactions where real estate is being built to meet internationally recognized green standards, such as LEED certification, which demonstrate environmentally responsible construction practices. Moving on to sustainably linked financings, these type of financings don't depend on how proceeds are used, but their key feature is that they're tied to the obligor's performance against sustainably related KPIs. So the financings would include KPIs that go to things like reducing greenhouse gas emissions, reduced water consumption, or the amount of renewable energy generated by an obligor. And in my view, it's probably these financings that are crucial to ensure more is being done at the more practical level to reduce emissions and to achieve net zero. I think one of the benefits of these financings is that when the obligor receives the funds, it can use the funds as it needs to, but it puts the focus on the borrower's business decisions to implement decarbonisation efforts. You might wonder what happens if a borrower fails to meet its KPIs. And the way that's really dealt with is that the documentation will build in a pricing mechanism. So if the borrower isn't able to meet its ESG KPIs, then it will probably see a rise in the pricing. Critics would argue that this could open the door to financiers benefiting from a borrower's bad environmental performance because of the higher pricing that would kick in. So in response, some of financiers have pledged to donate any gains that they make from this bad performance to charity. And it's really principles like this, like donating to charity, that are so well entrenched within Islamic finance structures. You're probably aware that in Islamic financing, financiers don't charge default interest, but rather a late payment donation amount is made in case of late payment. So there are clearly synergies between Islamic finance and these sorts of financings. And it's really these types of financings that are going to expand the universe of borrowers and businesses that can access the sustainable finance market. So you touched a little on the lack of clear criteria for transition financing. Are there any legal issues in these kinds of sustainable transactions? Yes, and I think the sort of primary challenge, certainly within the the green space as a whole, is a lack of uniform regulation across various different countries as to what constitutes green, what is a sustainable product. And, And if you look, I mean, starting at the very top, If you take the Paris Agreement, which many people are familiar with, you know, that is a commitment, a treaty level commitment from a number of countries to reduce um, emissions, to improve the climate. The criticism of that is is very much a sort of bottom up treaty. And so each nation chooses what pledge that it will make towards reducing emissions and how it will go about that. But if there isn't a sort of uniform way of bringing together all of those different pledges, each country is free to choose what it wants to do. Another big criticism of it is that there isn't really a strong mechanism for enforcing. If a country fails to meet its pledges, it simply has to explain itself, but there isn't any hard obligation to meet these requirements. And so even at the nation state level across the board, there isn't a consistency of treatment. And then each country will then develop its own plans as to how it wants to address its carbon emissions and meet its pledges. 
and what that can result in is sort of real patchwork quilt of different regulations in different countries. You know, taking, for example, a borer who wants to develop a green hydrogen project, you know, it will need to find a market in order to sell its product, whether that is green ammonia or whether it processes it further into, let's say, sustainable aviation fuel. The regulation for those products in terms of what is green is different in different parts of the world. And so if you're investing heavily into a piece of equipment or a plant, you know, you really need the certainty that what is produced in that plant will meet your requirements to be classified as green in various different markets. And at the moment, the the lack of a consistent framework makes that very difficult. I think the other legal challenge, particularly relating to different countries doing different things, is also it makes it very difficult for investment to be targeted in the place where it would make the most impact. And a very live example of that, for example, is the Inflation Reduction Act in the US. The Inflation Reduction Act has a a large number, billions of dollars worth of subsidies for, for green projects in the US. A lot of countries around the world are looking at that and seeing a lot of increased investment in the US particularly Europe at the moment, is looking at its own legislation, whether it needs to do something to attract investment in Europe, almost getting into what is kind of a proxy trade war over green investment. Now, if you were to take a step back and say, you know, from a global perspective, what is the correct way of deploying investment in green energy and, and transition? One might say, well, actually, you know, the US is not where you want to focus your investment. You want to focus your investment much more in emerging markets, in in countries which don't already have a sustained program in place for renewable energy. But the legislation that sort of on a national level can make that very difficult. Similarly, in the emerging markets, you know, there are lots of competing priorities which are understandable around development, economics, and the ability to to meet these targets. And so you know, when you see a piece of legislation like the Inflation Reduction Act directing a lot of investment to the US, one has to query whether at a, a global legal level that really is the correct outcome. I understand. So it sounds like in addition to standardization, governance is a major issue here. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And that goes both at the local level and at a sort of international level. And so the governance around the Paris Agreement, commitments, How do we enforce that? Because certainly the US might be making great strides in terms of improving its carbon emissions. But if other parts of the world, which are large emitters, the likes of China or India, are not, one has to query whether that is an effective way for the planet as a whole to transition to a sustainable future. Similarly, at the local level, governance and particularly potential change in legislation is a real barrier to a lot of investment. Taking, for example, the green hydrogen example I gave earlier, you know, are you going to invest a lot of money today in building a plant which today meets certain requirements of, let's say, EU legislation if you're looking to export to the EU? When, you know, tomorrow the EU might change its legislation, make make the requirements more strict. And what was a green product or could be classified as a green product today, tomorrow may not be. And I think it's very difficult without that legal certainty for companies to make large investment decisions around those industries. So legal risk is a huge inhibitor of sustainable investing then? Yes, and I think that that comes in sort of two forms. One is, as we talked about the regulation, 
and what you know what is green today what certainties do i have that something could be certified green tomorrow i think there is also a risk around what we call greenwashing so companies being challenged because they have made statements that they are green or that they're investing in green products and i think this goes particularly for the banks when they are making green loans or advertising their their financial products as green um, you know, an Islamic finance institution which makes available financing and calls that green financing wants to be certain that it's not going to be challenged on that or accused of greenwashing. And I think my advice in that area would be to ensure that when you are making statements around what is green, that those statements are as specific as possible so that, for example, if you have a sustainability link product, that the KPIs are very clearly identified that you are very clear about what they are. Because whilst sort of very grand, sweeping, broad statements about green objectives sound very good in publicity, it does open you up for challenge if you don't meet those or they're not specifically identified that you can show that you are meeting the statements that you're making. And so I think being very specific about what it is that you are doing and how it is that your finance product or your company is green is going to be very important. So with all of this in mind, do you see the current legal landscape changing for sustainable finance? I think inevitably it is such a hot topic at the moment. You know, regulation is changing all the time. To give the example from before, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act in the US is a new piece of legislation which is very much changing the global picture on how people invest and where people invest and what people are looking at. Inevitably, that will increase over time. You know, climate change is obviously such a large focus of so many people that I think it's inevitable that legislation moves and shifts and tries to influence behaviour. I think what we need to do, however, in order to encourage as much investment now as we can, is that try and give as much certainty today as to what the landscape is. And that risk of change needs to somehow be dealt with. And somebody has to take that risk. And I think that is where the real challenge is at the moment, is deciding where in these new investments the risk for legal change lies. With COP28 being around the corner, can we expect it to impact Islamic financial institutions more than its conventional counterparts? On that, I think COP27 being in Egypt really spurred more interest for Islamic financial institutions. And we we think that it will go further with COP28 being in Dubai this year. The UAE was the first GCC country to join the race to zero, committing to net zero by 2050. And Saudi Arabia has also set its targets. But ultimately, the energy transition is going to be very costly because it requires new technology and to replace, you know, some of the more traditional um, carbon heavy energy ecosystems. So there's going to be a need for massive, massive investment and it can't just be done by the governments. At the heart of like these investments will be electrification, which will demand enormous investment in transmission connections that link power production sites to growing demand centers. And we recently worked on the Saudi and Egypt interconnection project, which was actually an Islamic finance transaction that was supported by European ECAs. And that was a really good example of Islamic financial institutions and ECAs coming together to make these critical projects happen. 
So I really do think that this is an exciting time for Islamic finance. Islamic investments are already very principle-based. So adding that extra layer of ESG compliance will come quite naturally. And there's also been a lot of talk within Islamic finance circles about not just sort of aiming for Sharia compliance, but to also aim for that additional merit of Tayyib, which is often translated as pure and wholesome as it aligns with Islamic principles of environmental stewardship. And we've seen that in the build-up to COP28, the DIFC and the Global Ethical Finance Initiative have put together a working group to really focus on creating a Tayyib impact framework, which basically is Sharia compliance plus ESG. So with COP28 being in the UAE and the UAE probably being one of the most sophisticated Islamic finance markets in the world. We think there's a real opportunity for Islamic financial institutions to lead the way on on this. And we're definitely looking forward to being part of these transformational deals. Absolutely. Afsha and Joe, thank you very much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more discussions on Islamic sustainable finance and investments, log on to www.islamicsustainable.com. You can also listen to the episodes on your favourite platforms, including iTunes and Spotify.